Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to our inaugural podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season and to all our festival members and donors for making this possible. A limited number of signed books are available from our bookseller, Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and I'm sure there's an independent bookseller wherever you are in the world who would be happy to sell you a copy of any of these books. Today, we'll be exploring Fear Itself with three talented authors. Two of the three books would be best described as horror novels or thrillers, and one, the story collection Cascade by Craig Davidson, is not. But Craig is no stranger to horror, which he writes under the best-selling pseudonym Nick Cutter. These stories, however, are brilliant and insightful and tackle some of our deepest fears. Here's a quick taste of the prose in Cascade, followed by my conversation with the Canada Reads finalist and national bestseller. There are shapes that only live in fire. Hunger. That's fire's basic drive. And it's the purest, most incarnate hunger you can imagine. I've seen fire chew through lead girders, watch them soften and bend over backwards like a contortionist. I once saw a column of flame ripple up a sheet of aluminum siding so that it crinkled and contracted and curled right up as if rolled by huge, invisible hands. Fire will grunt and growl and come at you with the soft slitherings of a snake. It'll howl around blind corners like a pack of wolves and gibber up from flame-eaten floorboards and reverberate in a million other strange ways besides. Sometimes it sounds like buzzard talons clawing across pebbled glass. Other times, it'll come for you silent as a ghost, a soft whisper of smoke curling back under a doorway, beckoning you to open it. And that's when it's at its most dangerous, when it's hiding its true face. Craig, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks, Sean, for having me. So the topic of, of our, you know, inaugural podcast is fear itself. And in some ways, I, I almost felt like I should be talking to your pseudonym, uh, Nick Cutter, who, who, you know, really deals with horror. But then when I, when I picked up this collection of short stories, um, I realized that fear is an undercurrent that I, I think it's safe to say is running through uh, these stories as well. And so I think we can talk about fear uh, and these stories, and and you'll have something to say without having to uh, switch personalities and become <laughs> your darker self. Right. <laughs> when I picked up Cascade, the first story is, um, I think I, it's not a spoiler to say, the very beginning, it's a there's a car accident, and boy, we're right in fear territory right at the start. The stories in Cascade, they were written, you know, I think I was writing the first one of those way back in... Um, I would have been living in Fredericton working as a um, reporter uh, and an editor at a, at a newspaper at that point. So that would have been back in, I'm going to say, like eight or nine years ago. Uh, wow. And uh, I think that's how it goes, right? I, I, sorry, I shouldn't say that. There, there, are, there are writers who are ex- exclusively sort of short story writers. You're, you know, you're Margaret, uh, Alice Monroe, sorry, kind of being the, 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 the classic. 
um, and, and there are many others. And there are those of us who, you know, write novels and then write short stories and some of them use it as a palate cleanser or some of it, you know, a story just jumps into your head and so you set your novel aside and write it. Um, and I guess that's more or less, I, I just wrote, the, wrote them in, in times when uh, maybe I was, you know, sort of germinating a, a new novel idea, but I wasn't quite ready to write it. And so this, this story idea that either been sort of kicking around at the back of my head or kind of came to me out of the clear blue sky, I'd sit down and write it. And so just sort of over the years, I accumulated enough that you sort of look at it and you're like, oh, um, we've got a, we've got a collection here. Actually, the way it was with this one, now that, now that I'm remembering it, that it was, I'm going to say five stories. And then the last story was a novella called The Saturday Night Ghost Club, mm. which uh, my my editor said, you know, we could publish this maybe on its own. That might be something we should just section it off the stories instead of having it as a as a novella at the end. My, my first collection, Rustin Bowen, also had a big novella at the end. Um, and so we ended up, you know, kind of making it a bigger uh, it turning it into a short novel and that got published on its own. And then I, I ended up writing a couple more short stories um, to, to flesh out, I guess you'd say, uh, this collection, although they had been, you know, they had been ones that I had been thinking about for quite some time. So yeah, more so than any other book um, in my life, actually, unless you would count my first book, which I guess is an accumulation of the 28 years that preceded it to a degree. <laughs> uh, this one took the longest and that, you know, you just sort of pecked away at it. You wrote a story here, a story there. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting one with the first one that you, you mentioned, uh, that the car crash, um, mm. it's written, it's written from a, a mom's perspective, uh, uh, you know, uh, the mother of, of a child. Uh, and, uh, I wrote the first part of that. I wrote, I wrote it in, in its entirety at first, um, when our son Nick was born. So that would be eight years ago, shortly mm. after that. And then I re-edited it for the collection uh, which often, you you know, you do do that. You go back to a story and really sort of look at it through fresh eyes shortly after the birth of our of our daughter, uh, Charlotte. So that would have been, you know, eight months ago. So, you know, it's sort of one of these stories that, that kind of has a double veneer on it um, based on uh, the two, the, the birth of both of uh, our children and um, and the circumstances that were prevailing, which, as you know, as a, as a dad, it's, uh, it, 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 I almost forget just how uh, demanding and 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 sort of crazy inducing for a first little bit you're, you're having a having a, a young baby under underfoot is oh god yeah I mean and this is the thing of of you know that's um, the first story in the book the ghost lights and I'm was really struck I, I didn't realize you'd started it back when, before you know when when Nick was new to the world but I, I did know you. You had recently had a child, and I thought, wow, he's going right in. Uh, you know, when I recommended this book to people, I, I'm, I'm being very clear that I think if you're expecting a child, maybe skip it for now and come back later. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, I can, uh, you know, with a 14-year-old at home, I can, I can look back on this, and, and it's, it's safe territory for me in, in some ways, that, that the yes. all-encompassing horror of, of having a new life that is totally dependent on you and your family to to do everything for <laughs> right and, yeah. right and and you know i wonder so you said you wrote this when 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 nick was born was it after mm -hmm. he was born or, or did you start before he was born this i what think you're... you know it's weird time gets phrase on you and memories start to kind of become less clear so if i'm, I'm sitting here right now sean i'm saying 
I'm saying that it was shortly after he was born because I think some of, so, as you said, some of some of the notion is um, is is of just the kind of fear so, sometimes of or, or just the disruption of someone's life, but but also it's like. Um, you know, it's kind of a love too. You've never felt before, at least for some yeah. of us. For me, it was, anyways, and it yeah. was it was a love built as much out of out of fear for what could happen to my son, mm. as you know, as anything else. Because you know, you sort of are, you sort of understand fear in a in a way, um, and and care and responsibility, I guess, um, in a way that felt like really like oh god, you know. And I'm certainly someone. You know, we had Nick. Um, my wife was 30, I was 35, so I was like, no, I wouldn't say I was an older dad, I was just like, that was, you mm-hmm. know, some of my friends had had, had their children earlier, and, and some, you know, later, but, um, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you're, you're sort of settled in your ways, and you, you sort of have a sense of the way your, you know, your days go, and um, and it doesn't, it, it obviously, that, that all gets thrown into upheaval, and that's the first thing you sort of deal with, and, and that, that didn't take me very long, but it was... It was that sense of like, what would you do for um, your child? Uh, and but, uh, ultimately, the answer is like, I, there's nothing I wouldn't do, pretty much. Well, in this is a story you're dealing with postpartum depression, uh, feelings of helplessness, and and I would say, I mean, love is there, but it's almost for this for the mother, it's more about determination almost than anything else, right? And there is very clearly a point where love is too simple a term almost for what, mm-hmm. what she's going through in terms of this this notion of it's up to me whether we live or die whether this child lives or dies and what am I willing to do right yeah I think you're right I mean that's you know sort of um you know for my early uh, you know say most of my early books I wouldn't I wouldn't have approached trying to write um from the perspective of a woman and and I'm not sure you know uh, I'm not sure how well that worked or not but it was something that I felt like I didn't want to tell that story from the the man's perspective, um, and I think you know, um, in in being as close as I was with my wife during during those periods, obviously I can't live the life that she was living or go go through the things that she was going uh, in terms of like, um, you know, obviously um, nurturing or you know gestating <laughs> our son and daughter, <laughs> but like you know the kind of that part, obviously not, but like you know we were really close and we spoke a lot and and sort of. Um, it felt like something I wanted to try to approach, but I, but I think, I think you're right. It's determination. Um, and it feels like too, there's, there's a sense of like when a, when a baby is that small, um, you know, every, 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 obviously they need you so much, but also who they're going to be is kind of, it's all guesswork. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't, mm. we don't, you're, you're saving the, the person that you hope they grow up to be in a way, you know, um, because what they are uh, as as a child and and as um a lot of a lot of early parents would frustrated you know parents would tell you and right. they would regret later is just that they're very <laughs> needy sort of you know and their schedule is the schedule and if and if yep. you're up at three o'clock in the morning with them and then you're up again at four thirty and then you're up at five and then the mm. you know mm. the sunlight is coming over the neighborhood and you're exhausted and they're still crying then you're like they're like well that's inconsequential to me, uh, you know, uh, and that's pro- the way I'm sure I was and my brother. Um, <laughs> so it's like it's this sort of sense of, to me anyways, this sense of of, of obligation, as you said, and determination and um, and, and just sort of love that, that exists for, um, for for the person that you, you want to grow up with and have grow up under your wing. 
um, and sort of yeah, what you will go through basically for for that, even in some somewhat mindlessly, really, just because it's sort of this um, uh, this instinctive drive. Well, you know, is I don't know if you would agree or not, but I feel like there is an undercurrent of fear in all of these stories. Do you, is that safe? To say, do you, I think do you so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. If if you're if you're finding that it's, it's weird, you know, uh, sometimes some people are much better at, at pinpointing um, certain running themes in in a, in a writer's work rather than they are. I've certainly noticed. So so now that you mention it, though, I'm like, yeah, of course, I can see exactly what you're saying. In the basketball story, there's this wonderful sense of of possibility and also of of. Uh, looking back on all the things that you couldn't do and it's almost like parenting in a way the 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 older basketball player who's trying to mentor mm-hmm. a younger player yeah um right it's it's similar it's about yeah, you're it's totally about the right fear. yeah i i you know and now that you're now that you're mentioning it and kind of like um i'm seeing the examples that you're bringing up and the way that they they have that kind of um those same touchstones that they're that they're working with um yeah i think you're absolutely right about that and it's it's you know it's interesting because I think I say in the afterward it's um, you know it's been fifteen years since Rust and Bone came out um, and and that was very much those stories in their own way were reflective of obviously me at not only the point at which it was published but the years leading up to that um, mm-hmm. the sort of things that I would be grappling with that a that a twenty something guy um, who grew up the way I did was grappling with and um, and. They were. It's, they were. They are. It's a very different brace of stories from mm. from Cascade, you know. And I think some people would say who had read those earlier stories and and liked them and whatever they liked about them, they they might see in this. Uh, I don't know, like j- just uh, you know, you, you want to say like wimpiness or something, but that's not it. That's not. That's not what I'm really looking for. I'm just. It's sort of like there's there's a difference in in the tone and and for me it's obviously it's like I'm you know the the worst thing is running across someone that you knew from high school and you realize he or she is the exact same person that they were <laughs> when you saw them twenty years ago right unless they were an awesome person yeah. and 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 some people maybe ultimately are 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 best not having changed and have maintained whatever awesomeness that they had but. But all to, all, often it's sort of like, oh boy, like, you know, you're still stuck there. In, yeah, you're still there and it's not good for you and it's probably not good for the people around you either. So, so for me, it's sort of like, I don't, I think probably it's completely natural and it would be almost unnatural for it to be a sort of the same brace of stories about um, guys getting oh, yeah. fights and not sure about how they fit into the world and, um, you know, sort of tied up with, with aspects of their masculinity, which is not to say that doesn't doesn't prevail in these stories as well but i think it's a much more muted sense because even if i do go back and i don't make a habit actually at all of going back and reading my old stories but i think if i did i would probably be struck by to a certain degree the the power of them coming from the fact that you know i'd never dealt with rejection i'd never dealt with Mm. what the world really thought of it's like sorry here's 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 me and then you realize after you've published a few books people are like oh (laughs) <laughs> in some cases like I don't know, I don't like that you know uh, but there's that certain bravado or that certain sense of not knowing that so you you approach those stories with a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of type of power uh, and then uh, but I think more so it's the changes based on you know as we've been speaking you know my life has changed I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father I'm a, I'm a husband um, and the things that used to scare me uh, 
don't scare me anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I have I have new mm-hmm. I have new things that scare me, which I suppose, as you said, is is reflected in in these stories. Right. And now, so when you sit down to write a story, is there a how conscious are you of wanting to work through a like a specific theme? Or is it just that there's a, a scene that pops into your mind or a moment that pops into your mind? Or, or where does the story start? And what is it you're doing when you're sitting down to write one? I used to say, you know, with, with Rust and Bone, especially, it was sort of like I found a character who I felt I could follow. Uh, I felt that he or she had some edges and jags that would be interesting to sort of plumb. And then I found I found a job often, a calling, let's say that, that, that they were fascinated with or they had thrown themselves into sort of obsession. And I sort of ground those things against each other until a story kind of started harmonizing out of it. So I think probably there's some, some like say the um, medium tough, you know, I'm fascinated. I, I clearly am fascinated with, uh, with brain, with um, surgeons. I really am fascinated with that kind of mentality of a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of something that I'm always interested in and, uh, you know, which, which showed in, in not only in, in that in the ghost story, club, but yeah. uh, in the ghost club as well. Right. So, yeah. which would have been a part of this collection in, in a different iteration. So, yeah. Um, you know, some that that's often what it is. Um, but usually it does start at a point of, of, of a character, you know, or, or a set of characters and, uh, and a situation that they find themselves in, like, um, or, or even from real life, you know, the, um, the basketball story, which I mean, I still play pick up well, <laughs> pre COVID I used to, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't picked up a basketball, uh, in, in, in five months, but, uh, before that, like two or three times a week and, mm. you know, was really, really into that specific sport, which had just been something I'd been, um, into since, since childhood. And there's even a basketball story in, in my first collection. So, uh, but there was an incident with a player in Utah, uh, which I'm, again, I, I kind of, I use it very liberally of, he got into an altercation with a fan and the fan had, evidently oh, wow. uh, said said some things that were um you know deeply racist and and hurtful um and it didn't it didn't go to the point that that i i take it in the story but that was kind of the the seed of that part of 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 the story of of the you know um you know here's here's a player who is going through his own kind of on the court struggle where he's hitting hitting a ceiling which i think is mm. something that we all can feel too at some point in our lives, you know, uh, where, where you've kind of, you've reached your apex at your given endeavor. And it's, um, mm. I mean, I can be an incredible, painful thing to feel it in real time, especially if you're a member of a sports team and you feel like you're letting everybody else down, but, and then to have that compounded by this awful, you know, sort of circumstance with a fan. Mm. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, I guess they're, they're all, you know, sort of, I come, come to each of the stories at a slightly different ve- vector, but but generally, it's it starts with character and and something that obsesses that character, and also you know happens to usually obsess me. I hope, having you know enjoyed uh, your work with under both hats uh, as the Nick Cutter and and Craig Davidson, that are you beyond that fear of of running out of steam, or does that still get you in between well, projects? That's a good Question, Sean. Yeah, yeah. I th- well, yeah. I think uh, you know, and maybe you know. It's funny. You'd, you'd be asking me uh, pre-COVID. I think probably you mm. might find, if you ask this question to a lot of writers, I, I would have thought, and I've said this to my wife. You know, if COVID had have struck when I was in my twenties, you know, and I was kind of working at a job I didn't want to really be at, and um, you know, they said, well, you can 
you can leave. You you have to leave. In right. fact, you know, you have to just basically sit <laughs> at home and and do nothing. Uh, I think that would have been the perfect time for me to be like, okay, great. You know, like mm. I can. I can get as much work as I, I can abdu- and indulge in all these kind of obsessive tendencies that writers um, often have. Uh, and um, but I think during the last five months or whatever, it's been it's my wife has been awesome. Uh, but maybe I'll get like an hour to write here, three hours there, mm-hmm. two hours here. So it's sort of like um, it's a it's definitely a different time in our lives and a d- definitely different for every you know depending on what their career is, and, mm-hmm. n- including yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't really worry that my story has been told or that, that I've, I've lost my heater. Um, although I, every so often I'm sure I do, but I also assume that like pretty much everybody, uh, every writer, uh, or 99% of us also have those fears. And those are just really specific, I think to, you know, the creative class and, um, but I, you know, I do, I, I make sure I tell my wife that if, that if I have to change jobs or if I have to do something different with my life, I want to make sure that I'm, um, graceful about it. Do you know what I mean? There are, there right, are some people right, who right. can't, can't do what they want to do anymore. And so they blame the world for it, or they, they manufacture sort of, um, some kind of reason why it's happened and they, they find enemies. And at a certain point, if you're young, that, that might actually be as dirty as that fuel is. It might actually power you to a certain level of success. Maybe even it did for me, but you know, I'm 45. So it's like, I'm not, that's, that fuel doesn't exist for me anymore. So if it just turns toxic and, and I start being upset at the people that I love, um, that would be an absolute, um, that would crush me. You know what I mean? So like, I think anybody who is creative has to recognize that like, you know, for, 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 again, for 98% of us, it's like, there are, you know, there are the people who are like deeply, um, unequivocally talented and they're sort of like, you know, and, and, and when they harness like passion and, and determination to that, then it's like, really, they, that's the stratospheric kind of level. Mm. Um, and so you accept that, you know, and you sort of actually celebrate that, I think. Um, but you know, if, 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 if that, for for most of us, it's like it's it's hard work. It's it's a little bit of luck. Sometimes a lot of luck. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into the sort of melting pot of what makes your career. So um, you really want to be thoughtful about being knowing that you're fortunate to be doing it for the time that you're doing it. And you know, for me, thankfully, I've been doing it long enough that I have, you know, I have a history that I can look back on and things that I'm like deeply proud of. And there's also a point, Sean, mm. that I've said this to my wife too, is like. I think a lot of us, me especially, I would love like the, uh, you know, the Eminem mic drop moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Where, yeah. you know, you just, you've done, you've done what you feel like you want to do. Uh, you've sort of answered whatever question that you set out on this particular journey to, to mm. answer about yourself or, or say. And then you just, you know, you, you actually push yourself into a completely different obsession. You know, and that's mm. so rare that people do that. And I, I can't even say that that I will, you know, ideally you would like to push yourself into that other obsession, having, you know, pushing yourself of your own volition, you know, you kind of exited one realm and you're entering this other realm as though I've shut the door happily and gracefully on this realm. I'm not being sort of like, Mm -hmm. no one's got the Mm -hmm. vaudeville hook out and they're just dragging (laughs) me into this new realm. But the idea of, of, of throwing myself into a completely different, um, obsession is actually really, um, 
It, it sounds wonderful, to be quite honest. Is there something you are hoping the audience takes away from this particular collection? Is there something specific you're hoping people get, or are you just happy to, to put it out there and, and, and see what they think? I know that a lot of writers you will speak to, um, you know, they do. They, they, they set a book. Uh, they're, 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 there's a political um, stance that they're taking or, or kind of a, a cultural uh, or societal, some, some kind of ill that they would like to address or bring attention to. Um, and I, I, you know, I would be, I would be lying if I said that that was something that was within the, the scope of this particular project for me, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's more just like, and it's not just slice of life or anything like that. It's not that I think I would like to have with pretty much any, any book that I write, um, uh, book or story is to to engender, if I could, an emotional response in the in the reader. You know wh- whether that's you know even if it's something like where they don't actually they can't find any synchronicity to their own life in it. I think it's easier. Mm. You know, uh, for for a story, often if you if you feel like you you know that character because you are that character, or or sure. you've known someone like that character, or their life somehow mimics your own in some way, or you feel that kind of closeness but i think i think there are lots of great stories that i've read um where it's actually not so much uh it, but it's just like there is some kind of emotive sense that the, the that i'm recognizing that the writer is doing where where he or she is really homing in on maybe a very specific but mm. very universally held feeling that that we either have had or that we can picture other people having you know right. and it's almost like you kind of get that sense of like uh I've never, I've never been in that situation, and I never will be. But I can actually feel the truth of that emotion, or that reaction, or that conversation, in the way that it's delivered on, on the page. You know, so I mean, that's a fairly high aspirational goal, obviously, mm. for any of us. Um, but yeah, outside outside of that, uh, for this specific collection, anyways, no, there's 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 no. Um, and that's often where a lot of great fiction lately is is headed. There, there really is a, a spirit of um, pushing towards some some you know sort of a climate change potentially, or um, mm. you know some kind of grander kind of design where it's either allegorically presented as like that's the main goal that we're all looking at here with this book, or, or otherwise. Um, uh, but uh, I guess uh, I am old-fashioned in that way, <laughs> or I have nothing to <laughs> specifically say about those things right now that I feel that I can braid into fiction, so so no. The one thing that I was left with from, from these six uh, remarkable stories in Cascade was, this, was a, a reminder that um, love equals pain, but without it, there's no point in anything. And so lean in, <laughs> basically. Uh, that's what I got from, from each of these stories in different ways is, is the need to lean in to the richness and, and the, the terror that, that loving life and loving others brings. So, um, you know, if that's any, in any way what you were hoping to do, that, that's what I got out of it. That, that's, Sean, I really do appreciate that. That, that actually is, as you, as you sort of mentioned earlier, that's kind of seems like the, the common thread that you found throughout them. And as soon as you mentioned it, I, um, I felt like, yes, that's kind of an outlook that I think I have on life in general. Uh, you know, and it's, it's some, sometimes tough to express. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult to express, you know, sort of in, in, um, 
in just personal conversations uh, as much as you'd probably like to, but I suppose that's one of the joys of being able to write uh, and, and to sit down and um, kind of plumb those depths in yourself and, and hope that, uh, that, yeah, that there's going to be um, some people out there who um, feel the same way you do. So I really do appreciate that. Well, what a great spot to, to leave it. Um, Craig, congratulations on the collection of short stories. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. And um, I hope... Uh, everyone rushes to the bookstore to pick up a copy of this beautiful collection. And, um, uh, you know, and I hope when the next book comes out, you can actually tour and meet readers again. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Sean. That was Craig Davidson in conversation on his new collection, Cascade. Our second author is one of this country's best, delivering literary thrills and chills, an author praised by critics and readers alike. Andrew Piper is the number one internationally best-selling author of The Demonologist, The Wildfire Season, and now The Residence. We'll give you a little taste of the writing, followed by our conversation. The two of them drew closer and shared what they had learned in their time in the mansion. That at the very heart of America there lives a darkness. Material and intelligent and alive. One that would outlive them both to sculpt the country in ways that over time might not be recognized as a darkness at all. They were an old couple already half forgotten by history and so with nothing of themselves to lose. Yet neither Jane nor Franklin could capture the specific thing they were referring to. It could be spoken about, yet resisted any one identity. It had a shape but could never be drawn. As when seeing the form of something in a cloud, the very act of pointing skyward, there, prompted it to shift into something else. The war, their lost sons, the people sold and resold, the devil that hides in the White House, the dead rising up to claim the living even as they walked in sunlight. Thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for being part of our inaugural podcast. And can we start by you telling me, what is it about a scary story that appeals to you? I think it's, you know, it, it works on maybe a few levels for me. That It's uh, different, different kinds of pleasure. Um, one is, is personal, you know, sort of the, the pleasure that I take in writing it. That there's something I find just on a craftsman level very fun and challenging about trying to create um, a frightening situation or a suspenseful scene that is, you know, works from a tradition of other people, other craftspeople who have done those same things in the past, but making it fresh, making it, investing the scene with something unexpected. Um, so that's just a, and that's fun to do for, as a, you know, just as a, as a writer. And then the idea of that piece of writing going out into the world and um, readers engaging with it on hopefully multiple levels, but one of those levels being that it frightens them, that it keeps them up at night. When, when there's nothing that delights me more than readers, uh, you know, reaching out to me to say, uh, you know, you, you kept me up all night or, or I, uh, you gave me nightmares or I'm looking over my shoulder wondering what's, you know, what's that, is that ghoul from your book approaching... Because that's delightful just in the way that like, oh, it's, it's working, it, it, it connected. But I think in a somewhat more serious way, the idea of kind of rearranging someone's 
consciousness or subconsciousness through through the book you know that you know that they're reshaping their dreams or um i, I wrote a book a few books ago called the killing circle and it has it in a uh, a, mm-hmm. a villain called the sandman who creeps around uh toronto the contemporary toronto of that time the neighborhood where i was living in and i had a couple of readers say oh i live in that neighborhood too and i think i've seen the sandman and that kind of, you know, that that kind of direct alteration of somewhat a complete stranger's consciousness of their own geography, of their own reality, um, is a testament to not just the power of horror writing, because obviously different kinds of literature can do that in different ways, but to kind of inject um, a stream of the nightmare into what would otherwise be uh, predictable reality is gives me great pleasure. And and then finally, you know, the, the, there's the there's the more um deeper things that I think horror writing uh, uh, can do. Mainly uh, the way it can reveal uh things that remain hidden from ourselves, you know, the things that we uh the things that make us scared um can sometimes be revealing to what uh excites us or or secrets that we keep uh, deep in our own subconscious seller it's it's i often think that what frightens us is is akin to um our own desires our own sexuality in the sense that we feel we know it on one level but on the other on the other hand in some way it's constantly surprising us or revealing itself to us in new ways and so um for all the above reasons i, I if you for me it's a it's a subgenre or an, a corner of literature that um it yields so much and can do so much and I feel so so free and excited in, in, in working in it. So part of what makes um, a story like this, a scary story, work is we've got to really believe the characters. I know this says a lot about who Jane is, right? Yes, Jane, it, I've, I've drawn Jane as... as um, um, someone whose suffering is real and, and was all, all through her life, both her, the loss of her own brothers as a child and, and, and then her own children later on. But it is, those losses are conjoined in her in a, in a, in a way that mutates. And, and it, what I mean by that is she's someone who um, embraces loss from the very beginning. She has a kind of a gothic um, interest in in death and loss. And she, she luxuriates in the self-pity of her physical discomforts and her ail- multiple ailments and headaches and uh, fainting spells. And um, it becomes an identity um, in the way that I think it can become for some people who uh, suffer from non-terminal illnesses, but they can sort of wrap themselves in it as opposed to trying to rid themselves of it. And that's, you know, you know, Franklin sort of, it's what attracts Franklin to her because he feels, well, maybe I can protect her. I will make her better. I will, uh, I will be her shield. But at the same time, it frustrates him at times because he feels he can see her uh, almost at the border of enjoying her sufferings. And um, so Jane, for all those reasons, I think Jane is a, is a, both a sympathetic figure, but someone who um, makes decisions that 
you know, in, in, invite into her life and into the White House um, um, things that, you know, there's certain things we want, one would, should not wish for. And the rules of Gothic fiction, uh, in the rules of Gothic fiction, that includes wishing for the return of the dead and, and aligning oneself with agencies of, of evil in order to achieve that. And Jane, Jane, in a way, sort of from the very beginning, Jane is, sees herself as the character in a Gothic fiction. You know, she, I see her as someone who is almost writing her own story and it's a melancholic tale of of a of a of of lovely Jane, who's the least robust of her uh, of the of the girls in her family. Her, her older sisters were much more fun. Boys liked them more. They were they were you know sort of more fun to go to the dance with. Jane would be the pretty one in the corner who was just sort of too ill to to uh, you know um, join in the fun. But I think a lot of that was of Jane's own authoring. She was someone, let's, you know, and what evidence do I have of that? Well, a lot of that I'm, of course, creating. But she is someone who, you know, wrote letters to her dead son. She is someone who, um, I think it was a sort of a, a, a novelist of a kind. And, and her book was her own life. And... She lived so internally and so so much in her own head and in her own imagined space that um, uh, to me she's such a, that's such a strikingly gothic feature of uh, of of how she managed her loss. She kind of she turned it into myth. Right, and would you agree with that gothic that sentiment that that I think you, you sum up in the book as sort of this is the root of evil is uh, that. We are made of our losses. To look for ways around it is to open a pathway for the devil. Or, you know, another thing you say is uh, even the greatest atrocities begin with a harmless musing. Is this, is this sort of your, your thesis on, on what evil is, how it gets in? Yeah, you know, I, when, you, um, when you read accounts of, you know, real life accounts of people who uh, see themselves as, as having suffered demonic possession or... Um, having uh, some kind of um, contact with the demonic, or those who who try to help others who have been, who have been afflicted in these ways, whether one believes in the the truth of these accounts one way or the other, um, one of the features of them, nevertheless, over and over again, is that the demons don't typically choose someone to visit randomly that there are, when you sort of dig deeper into these um, accounts, you discover that the people who um, have the scratching in the wall or, you know, the, the, the people who have a haunted house typically enter that house in some way haunted themselves. And so the demon seeks out those who have a vulnerability. That vulnerability can be uh, grief, typically loss. So often people who, uh, and many, many of the times people, um, you know, reach out to me to correspond with me to, to share their stories of these experiences. And I think partly because they think it might be an interesting story and partly because sometimes people reach out to me because I think I can help them. You know, I wrote a book called The Demonologist and I think sometimes people think I am a demonologist 
And they'll say, you know, I, I, I live in a house and I think there's a demon here and, it, and it's afflicting me and my family. Can you help me? And I, I have to say, no, I'm just a novelist. I, I can't help anybody. Um, but, but I think from the, you know, from that research that I've done into, uh, you know, into people who have had these experiences or claim to have, um, I think it's interesting that evil or whatever we might call it, the demonic, seeks a way in and grief is one of those things narcissism is another vanity right perhaps our current uh inhabitant of the white house uh that could have been uh, uh you know that's the way in for him although there's so many ways into that particular personality i don't think a demon would have any trouble finding a way yeah in. um so in the case <laughs> so, yeah so it's you know it's it, it, it's sadness depression melancholy loss vanity um, this is how, that's how the devil gets in, and and so that interests me as a, as a fiction writer because it's an interesting way to reveal character. Um, why mm. not so much you know like oh what happens in the haunted house how is it ha- how is it haunted what do the scary things want and what are they going to do on the surface those are very those are the primary concerns of a reader reading a story of this kind and and it, as it ought to be but for me what's more interesting is is why these people, why are they haunted? And, mm. you know, how is the, how is the agencies of the haunting chosen them? I think that's, that's the more revealing thing that, that comes as the genuine surprise uh, as we move deeper into the story. You, you describe, one of the characters describes falling in love as a choice where there is no choice. And it, in some ways, it sounds to me like you're, you're, the way you're describing evil getting in or, or, or the darkness getting in is, is almost the same as the way the light gets in. Yeah, I think that's true. And, but that can sometimes be illusory, you know, so that one thinks of, of mm-hmm. times in, in history, let's, you know, late 1930s Germany, there probably, well, there were, of course, there were uh, millions of Germans who felt that they had no choice and that they... Um, adopted reasons or rationale for the actions that they would go on to take both individually and collectively um, in the creation of the horrors that they you know, eventually were a part of by embracing, oh, national mythology, uh, the return of, you know, make Germany great again, um, whatever the slogan or the, or the belief, um, you know, that's the devil's work, right? I mean, I mean that sort of quite mm. literally that, 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 um, that one of the ways that uh, 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 evil enacts itself is through rhetoric and language and the seduction of myth. And I think what 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 Jane, you know, what Jane's failing, Franklin has plenty, but Jane's failing is that she embraces the darkness as a way of kind of justifying her 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 isolation and her. Uh, she doesn't resist. She leans into it and she leans into the self-pity. She leans into the loss. She she wraps herself in grief and nothing but. She creates a grief room in the White House and refuses to leave it. Um, and so as hard as it would have been for someone in Jane's position to resist, um, that I think is where, that is her, uh, that is her failing. And that we, and that is, that is what's incumbent on all of us to do. That's what is, I think, what right actions are defined by. That is, we must resist that which we know to be dark. 
to be to be darkness, to be mm. evil, and not allow ourselves to be seduced by all the reasons that we could. Well, we're doing it in the national interest, or my neighbor's doing it. Mm. How hard could it be? Or, well, that guy's not wearing a mask in the Costco. Why should I? I mean, there's always an opportunity mm. to embrace an alternative narrative to the one that we know is the right one. Um, but so that is, I think, resistance is at the very heart of righteousness. And submission to a seductive narrative is at the very heart of evil. Resistance can be, um, you know, sort of some kind of large scale or participation in a large scale movement, but it can also be quite small and quite personal. And um, horror fiction generally is 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 I think marked as a as a a narrative of resistance, a resistance to something terrifying and do we some people run from it that usually doesn't work out well um some people embrace it well look now that look where that's got you so all horror mm-hmm. literature i think is the literature of resistance and in that way i think it's it's a very it can be a very powerful narrative tool in in the discourse against um well whatever we might be up against um it, it appears at the moment it's fascism in our largest neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, I think that is a, it's a helpful and relevant literature to be reading right now. Um, given that we are up against something that is, uh, um, you know, one doesn't have to have much of an imagination to see as, uh, um, mon- you know, sort of enormous and threatening and, and, and frightening. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that is true. I think that, that the resistance can be, that can be quite intimate and, and quite small and it, and it's, you know, it takes one step. And I think the other, I think the other interesting aspect, uh, about horror literature too, is that it, I think it empowers us or it allows us a way of being alert to the false narratives. Um, you know, the, the seduction of the demon, right? I mean, demon in the, you know, it, it comes from the word knowledge. And demons are, you know, it, despite what you know, maybe B horror movies sometimes dis- demonstrate them as, you know, these kind of drooling, toothy uh, <laughs> gremlins. Um, they are, in fact, or at least I should say in fact, but in, in, in their true origins, they are uh, angels originally. They are articulate. They're highly intelligent they they've just taken a different course they seek to undermine us they are extremely powerful they are wonderful storytellers they cannot love they um they are incapable of of creating anything of genuine value but they are extremely intelligent and capable of destroying and i find that you know that 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 kind of um what horror fiction of a, at least of a certain kind can do is make us alert to um, the seduction of lies and how that's another thing that we must resist. You know, that's sort of like, well, you know, if I, as you were just mentioning, if I just, if I, 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 I don't know if I really sort of believe this thing or not, but I'm, I, you know, I'll go with it because it'll, it's easier. And, and, uh, and I think that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the work of the devil too, right? I think that sort of the laying out of an right. easy, an easy way, uh, because going, you know, sort of being the prickly, being the, the prickly 
voice in the room, you know, the only one standing up and saying, hold on, this is wrong. It's, uh, among other things, it's, it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. Resistance isn't easy, but, um, but that's what we must do when, if we are going to meet something that is a, is a threat of the kind that we're facing now. So with these two characters who bring the evil with them to the White House, there is very clearly already, there are already forces in that house. There is already a sense, right, that that those who built the house, those who built America, um, have unfinished business, have not been invited into the warmth. And so I am curious, as you're, as you were, you know, as this book was was becoming real to you before you were you were at the stage of actually writing it, as you were as you were bouncing around, you've mentioned that you wanted to talk about. Um, the marriage and, and, and how fundamental a marriage can be, the, what, what keeps people together. Um, are you also in this book exploring the nation state, the colonial nation state? Is that as important to you as, as the marriage in some ways? I wanted it, I felt obliged for that to be there in, in some way. I mean, it, it, was, it was impossible to ignore and it would have been deeply wrong to ignore. The, that was the challenge of, uh, you know, to what extent to what extent should the novel uh, directly address slavery um, specifically and 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 also um, you know the 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 foundation of America on on atrocities you know on on such massive bloodshed and um, so to so many people and and peoples it was that's a very that's a that's a difficult balance to strike in a book that is intended to be uh a supernatural thriller and that mm-hmm. you know sort of deals with it is it's based on on pieces of 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 genuine history so but yes i i wanted i wanted that that to be i think that what i tried to do was to sort of to show how the idea of the white house as the people's house this mansion of white um, built on a swamp at the center of the nation's capital as a very, I wanted to show how uncomfortable a monument that that is, even among other uncomfortable monuments in Washington, that that, that is the, the most contradictory because it is not the people's house. You're not allowed within, well now, I don't know, within half a mile of the place yeah. and it's surrounded by armed police and it's 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 an it's an office and a spin factory and a um so that it's it's place is a sort of uh, um the people built this and it's for the people is frankly you know it, it's repugnant particularly when when given that in reality it was mainly built on slave labor and so it it is um i i knew that that had to be in the novel and but at the same time i, I it, the novel um, I didn't want the novel to become about that because uh, that's a different book. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, it's a, right. Um, um, but I, so I, but I wanted, I wanted the sort of the, the literal and figurative foundation of that building to be one not built on concrete or even marshland, but on blood because it is, you know, I loved reading scary stories as a kid, but I, my entire sense of what fear is has been rewritten since becoming a parent, um, 
you know, and I wanted to end just with a question for you about one of the scariest moments for me in the story is not scary because it's it's supernatural. It's scary because I think we can all we've all had this moment and it is where in praying for one person you love, part of you says, well, I'd give up this other person I love or I would do this or I'd give up that. And it, what I will just say about your work, Andrew, in, in, in all of the horror novels of yours that I've read, that I've loved, at the heart of them, there is always that human choice and that human need to connect that gets um, just pushed and distorted just a little bit, you know, like the darkness is, is sculpting it in some interesting way and all of a sudden you realize I've, I'm the bad guy <laughs> or I've made the poor choice or this one moment opened it up. Um, and I wonder just if, if you... Do you do you believe in a real way? I mean, I know this is this is a fun. It's a it's a page turner. It's it's but it's extremely well written, and you're very clearly dealing with with real emotional issues. If you do you believe first of all that that the that darkness can slip in as easily as it does in this story, and if that is true, is it also true that its antidote, that the courage or the light or whatever you want to call it, can also slip in uh, just as easily into our lives? Well, first first thanks, Sean. I appreciate. I appreciate those comments and and um to answer the, your question i think you know, yes that uh, i think when we look back at historical what are we now objectively understand to be uh unquestionable atrocities um it feels as though oh you know you know we ask ourselves well how how did the people at that time there must have there must have been um you know, some kind of toxic confusion or, or they, were, they were people driven by a unique strain of hate or something of that kind. But the time that we live in, the moment we all live in, and I'm speaking, yes, in terms of larger geopolitical uh, pieces that are moving about at the moment, but, uh, but also on the, on the personal level. The membrane between the life that we live, hopefully good and peaceful and caring, um, and on the other hand, a life of destruction and uh, uh, selfishness and, and neglect of our fellow human beings is very, very thin. It is not the sort of, uh, you know, eight foot thick concrete wall that, that history will sometimes lead us to believe that, oh, yes, if I could go back in a time machine into this horrific moment, I know I would do the right thing. Um, that it's actually sort of a much, much finer line than that when you're living it in the moment. And and I think one of the, you know, one of the things that I've always bristled at, and I think my, my, you know, my work to speak, you know, grandly, and I, I for, please forgive me, I don't mean to, but one of the things that has preoccupied me is to, you know, sort of to, when people sort of talk about, oh, the imagination, or that, you know, he or she's so imaginative, as if, as if the imagination is this benign force, it's always good, oh, you're using your imagination, that's good, um, the imagination can empower all manner of evil. Um, I think, you know, every, mm. every serial killer and, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, mass murderer and, and uh, probably has a, a, a far above average imagination. The imagination just enables the envisioning of an alternative. And what's, in, what's far more um, important is to be alert to the seductions of those pictures that our mind can sometimes draw before us. Um, and we're all, we're all, we're all capable of that, right? It's not a matter of, oh, that person saw these things. 
that other people don't see. And I think that's what fiction does, just to conclude. I think that's why reading fiction is so important, whether it's horror fiction or not, because it, it, it allows us to be honest with ourselves in a way that we can't be sometimes even with our most intimates, right? To sort of admit, oh, I've thought that, I've wanted that, I've had that urge, I have been tempted to do that, I have considered that, I've seen that. I haven't maybe done those things, but I've seen it and imagined it. And I think that's a good reckoning that we can have with a book to say to ourselves, oh, I, I, I'm closer to this horror or this horrific figure than I would otherwise be publicly comfortable in, in admitting, but I'm learning to recognize it. I think, you know, when through fiction and through reading and through um, empathy, we can, we can come closer to recognizing, wait a minute, this is the fork in the road. Don't go that way. Oh, that's a great spot to end. Uh, you know, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for taking the time to talk with us about this remarkable book, uh, The Residence. Congratulations. I, I, am, uh, I can't wait for this to be in people's hands and for them to be uh, just up all nights terrified, <laughs> absolutely terrified. That was Andrew Piper talking about his latest, The Residence. Our final author today is Stephen Graham Jones, professor of English at the University of Colorado Boulder, whose latest novel, The Only Good Indians, is a modern indigenous reimagining of the slasher genre and is one of the best-reviewed books of the year. We'll give you a quick taste of his writing, then our conversation on crafting horror. Toe up to the line with the right foot, back off a touch for safety, then work the left up until it's dead even with the right. Spin the ball back with the lines going from thumb to thumb and dribble twice, fast and hard with the right hand, using the whole shoulder, elbow straightening out each time. Catch it, look up to the rim, bend the knees, back straight, ass out, then push up with the front of the thighs, extend with the right arm, left hand just there to keep the rock steady, the calves pushing right at the end. When the middle finger of that right hand is gripping onto the rubber of the valve hole, imparting the perfect spin. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Stephen Graham Jones to the podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about his new novel, The Only Good Indians, which the New York Times referred to as gritty and gorgeous. Uh, Tommy Orange said more than I could have asked for in a novel. And uh, I will echo uh, their sentiments. And, and this is, um, I made the mistake, Stephen, of picking your book, bringing your book with me when I went out into the woods for a week. Uh, <laughs> oh, and it was I, just it, not a comfortable feeling for me. <laughs> and, you know, I want to start. So I'm terrified of swans. And I know that that fear comes from being two years old and, and uh, having an encounter with a, a swan that I swear was about 60 feet tall and yeah. had fangs. Yeah. What's the story with the elk? Did, did something happen with you? I just want to start because this is, I've never, ever seen elk be the kind of the object of such terror uh, before, but I am now afraid of elk. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, elk are big, of course, and you don't want to get, you know, trapped in a hallway with one because they'll stomp you or gore you or do something to you for sure. But, you know, you're rarely in an office complex with an elk either. Um, and in the woods, they can avoid you. They're like cats. They'll like creep right past you or they'll blast off. They'll hit hackerspace and be gone. Um, I've never had a scary encounter with an elk, but I have always hunted elk, you know, since I was, I guess, 12 years old. And I've always felt like a, 
ethical obligation to them, which mm. is kind of a relationship that allows me to feel guilt about them too, about elk that I've taken, you know, mm-hmm. and which is to say, I guess to give it a, to give it a um, more specific citation or something. Um, in 2008, I moved from Texas up to Colorado and just the year before, just the winter before, like five months before I moved, I had got an elk up on the reservation. And so she was still in my freezer. And I, you know, always when I shoot an animal, uh, even even though they're dead, I tell them I'm going to use all of you. You're going to feed my family, all this stuff, you know. And I just make a promise to them that this wasn't just for the fun of pulling a trigger or you know letting the arrow fly. It was because we're going to use you, you know. And but then when I moved, I had to clean out my chest freezer, and we were going to be on. We weren't moving directly into the house. We were going to be like two or three months driving around the country visiting people, and so I didn't have anything to do with this meat. So I went up and down my block and just gave away packages of elk meat. And I I felt really bad about that. I just, it it was like a festering guilt in me for a long time that I may, I may, it may have turned out that I did shoot this out just for fun because who knows what happened to that meat, you know, people may not have trusted me. They may have thrown it away as soon as I gave it to them, you know? So for me, that's what this, that's the scary part of elk is that, we have an ethical obligation to them or to all animals we hunt. And sometimes we fail in that regard, you know? Yeah. Now it seems to me that, that so much of this story is about um, consequences um, Mm -hmm. and consequences that, that maybe are unintended and and certainly it doesn't always feel fair. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that something you were consciously, I mean, I guess I just got the story from you that, that Mm -hmm. did start from a, a place of, of, um, a sense that perhaps you had taken a life without, uh, mm-hmm. you know, needing to, but is, is that, is that what you were exploring here? Is that the, the fear that you were looking at or, or is it, there... it was, or it's, it's really kind of a justice, the justice cycle that I'm trying to interrogate, I guess, or maybe, maybe escape. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course we all are. Um, I mean, that's what the slasher is, the way, the way all slashers are, you know, from the ridiculous to the really sublime or whatever is, some prank or trespass or crime or something is committed. And then 10, 20 years later at the high school reunion or the big dance or the work, par- the work party, or what, the camping trip, whatever it is, um, the wronged party from that prank or trespass or crime, either that party comes back or something comes back to get revenge for that party. A spirit of vengeance has risen to punish these people. And, and yeah, it is a disproportionate response. Like, like Jason Voorhees is cutting off counselors' heads, you know, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. But that, that's the that's the thing. After ten or twenty years of thinking about only this crime, this trespass, you know, it 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 magnifies in the spirit of vengeance's um, like consciousness and becomes all-consuming, and they become rage and vengeance. And so that just to them that justifies anything they need to do. And, you know, more specifically, I think all of us, um, I mean, not all of us have like um, drowned a kid at camp or anything like <laughs> on, the, on the screen, of course, but we've all done, we've all destroyed a person in some way, I think, whether mm. we disappointed them, whether we broke up with them. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that we hurt people, you know, and, and, and the question I wanted to kind of mess with here was, um, Number one, I want people to wonder what is rising up from my own back trail. You know, what what mm. what victims have I left behind who I now should be paying for? And number two, um, at what point are you kind of released from that justice cycle? If you are released, you know, because 
Cass and Gabe and Lewis and Ricky in here. It's been, it's been years for them, but, um, and they seem to be more or less good dudes, but all the same, something's coming for them. And they, when they pay, it feels maybe a little righteous, you know? One of the things that is so wonderful about this book is, is right when I got, uh, I don't know how far in, maybe maybe a, a quarter of the way in, I sort of thought I figured out, I knew where this was going. I knew it was a story about Lewis and, and more or less the shape of it. And then uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers here. I want to be very, very careful, but it, it takes a, a sharp right and becomes something totally different. I'm wondering how, how much of the fun for you is basically setting up those expectations that we all know the tropes. We sort of think we know where something's going and then just to take a sharp right. Man, that, that's the most fun to me. Um, that's what I love when I'm reading a piece and I think I figure it out and it goes a different way. And, you know, my best example of that probably, and probably my model for this as well, was um, Flynn's um, Gone Girl, you know? Like oh, the yeah. Half, the first half of that book, you think you're reading one book and then everything just changes and falls on the floor and shatters. And you don't know where you are. You're in the middle of a book, but you don't know where it can possibly go from here. I love those moments in a book when when like you're reading the paper version and you get to page 200 and something happens and you can't see even one way this story can keep happening yet your right thumb can still feel that there's 150 pages to go. (laughs) You know, something must happen. And I love that feeling when I'm reading. So I try as best I can, or I tried as best I can in this book anyways, to um, hopefully give the reader some of that, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. We still want the kind of, scare that only a good uh, good book or a good movie can give us and wh- yeah. what do you think that is you know i think um really it's it's just, it's as simple as evolution um when we came up on the savanna as you know australopithecines and all those other you know different hominins that were around everything out there wanted to sink its teeth in the back of our head and make a meal of us and we had these puny little fingertips that don't have claws and we didn't have teeth that really mattered to a lion or a eagle or anything. And we're not particularly fast. And um, we were, we were just like food for everything. And so, so much of our evolution, just millions and millions of years was us um, living with the certainty that there were teeth in the shadows slobbering for us, you know? And now in the 21st century, we shine light in all the corners. We scrub the germs off everything and we don't feel that same terror, but at the same time, we're hardwired to feel that terror. So I think we're drawn to horror because it allows us to feel human again in a world mm. that's probably probably become too safe and too sterile. So I'm not saying I want my world to be unsafe and unsterile, you know, <laughs> right. but I think, I think it's a species. We're just hardwired for that fear that um that we're hardwired for teeth in the dark. And I think horror provides mm. those teeth in the dark. And, and so the kind of fear that, that is abundant in our everyday lives, you know, fear of, of police mm-hmm. brutality, fear mm-hmm. of COVID, mm-hmm. fear of, of whatever yeah. it is, yeah. it's just too abstract, you mean, in terms to give us that, 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 that feeling? No, that? no, those are, those are definitely real. And, you know, I wrote Only Good Indians in, man, it must have been 2017, I guess, um, before we were having this upside down world of 2020, of course, mm-hmm. and, which isn't to say that police brutality was not going on in 2017, of course, long before that as well but um um yeah i wonder if i would write the same book now you know if i had the same premise i wonder if i would highlight different parts or something because the world is different now so i wanted to just like zoom in on 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 one scene from from relatively early Mm -hmm. on that that i think 
evokes a whole lot. And that's the, the, there's the, the bar scene with the parking lot chase. Yeah. Um, and I just want to ask, what's it like to write an action sequence like that? With, it's got all the kinetic frequency of an action film and you, you really uh-huh. feel the movement and the thrill and there's something exciting and fun about it where, where he's uh-huh. uh, characters being chased, uh, uh-huh. Lewis, uh, uh, you know, by a bar room full of angry yeah. uh, hicks. And yet, there's that thrill, but it's also establishing the narrative within a pretty, uh, pretty brutal colonial racist context, like within, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, the here and now. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, uh, you know, for you, what's it like approaching a scene like that? You know, what you have to do is um, you have to not necessarily chart your peaks and valleys, but you do have to go up and down really fast, you know? Like um, an example would be Ricky it goes outside that bar to pee in the parking lot. And so he's feeling like the greatest relief standing there. And then that is immediately countered by the suddenness of an elk behind him. You know? mm-hmm. And then um, later on in that, he gets away from this crowd of people wanting to do him damage. And he finally realizes again, and then a beer bottle bursts by his leg, by his foot on the ground. And he realizes, Oh crap, you know, it's, it's not over. And, and, I think it's really it's 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 too tempting in an action scene to um, have it be all screechy, but the reader becomes like immune to that screechiness really quickly. The reader will dial it out, so you have to go up and down and up and down. You have to like do a lot of resets, you know. And that's the one. That's my that's my um, method for getting across an action scene. Anyways, you visualize the entire fight in advance or does that happen as you're writing it is it choreographed i can just i i felt like i like you must have been jumping around wherever it is you're writing that moving mm-hmm. and there's, yeah. there's so much energy to it oh uh, you know later on in the book i was definitely having to stand up from my desk like when there's a <laughs> there's a free throw or a basketball stuff right I have to stand up i'd have to stand up and figure out how do i explain a hand going here a foot going there and all this stuff i'm with that opening scene with ricky i had the headline first so i knew where this was going mm-hmm. and um so then I had to come up with a way to, a reason for him to go outside. And that's that the bathroom was full. He had to go outside to pee. And um, then I just had to do what I was saying with those, with those ups and downs. But one, like there is stuff that surprises me. I don't have it all choreographed beforehand. I just feel, feel my way through it kind of on, on instinct and then revision. I, I kind of make it all work if I can. Um, but one example would be when he slides under that dually, I think it is that tall dually. Hmm. And he's trying to like hand over hand under the dually a little bit to push himself along. And it turns out the exhaust pipe is hot when he grabs it. You know, that was something that I didn't plan at all. And then so after that, he's having to kind of favor that hand a little bit, you know, hmm. and, which I think that's another important thing to do in an action scene is show that there's a price for all this, which I think of all the action movies, Die Hard does that the best. It know? really and does. Yeah. Like John McClane running across a glass with bare feet, you know, and mm-hmm. that's the price he has to pay to not get shot with bullets in that scene, you know? That's a great way of looking at it, and, and it is the thing that seems to be missing often with uh, at least the, the action movies that are less well put together, yeah. right? There's no cost. Yeah. It's a cartoon. Right. And this, um, yeah. no matter whether, they, whether we're worried about uh, uh, the bar patrons or the elk or, mm-hmm. or anything, mm-hmm. there's real danger, right? Yeah. Always yeah, exactly. this, this real sense of fear. Um, yeah, the, the, the thing I always try to remember in, in with writing is that... Um, you don't get any forward progress without paying a price, you know, right. um, otherwise you're right. It does become a cartoon. It becomes like, um, like Vin Diesel and triple X doing amazing <laughs> stunts and walking away from them. How conscious are you of writing for an audience 
And mm-hmm. who is the audience you're writing for? You know, with the Only Good Indians, the first audience I'm writing for is um, horror fans, people who mm-hmm. know the slasher, people who know the slasher dynamic. But of course, you always want your book to step over as many fences as it, as it can and find as big of a market as it can. And so I had to. Um, I can't just do in jokes about slashers and I can't assume people know the slasher. I have to, so it's, it's always a hard balancing act because I don't want to explain things about the slasher dynamic or the haunted house or what the zombie, the werewolf, whatever I'm writing about so exhaustively that someone who's in the know is going to be insulted. I want to, but I want to find a balance where someone who's new to the haunted house or the slasher can get a sense of what's going on, you know? So yeah, it's, it's definitely a trick to do that. And, and would there also be, I mean, you've got the, the horror dynamic, but are, I guess the, the other, I've, I've noticed recently on this side of the border mm-hmm. um, with indigenous writing, uh, uh, people like um, Cherie Dimaline and, and, and mm-hmm. Bob Rice are mm-hmm. in, using genre uh, in ways to talk directly to their own community, but also mm-hmm. to share some understanding of what, uh, of the fear of the reality that, that for, for, for the original inhabitants of the land that we're on, Um, we've been post-apocalyptic for for a few hundred years now. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, um, and, you know, the way that, like, people people are always asking, is this an Indian book? Is this not an Indian book? Mm. And what they're really looking for is um, markers or characteristics or traits that they can use. And the trick with with developing, like, a, a web of those markers or traits or whatever is that then you can extract those and use those as a formula to recreate you know, something that is going to appear to be American Indian fiction or art or whatever. And, um, of course, that, it never really works. You see a lot of people who um, aren't Native writing Native stuff. And um, for me, the difference in that, like, it, my own litmus test, which doesn't need to be everybody else's litmus test, I think it's important that we all have different tests because otherwise things will get homogenous. But um, mm. is if there's humor, which is if there's like a, a way of laughing at the, the bad stuff, you know, which is as near as I can tell, um, something that we've developed over the past 500 years living in this post-apocalyptic state, you know? Um, so like for me, I'm always in my, in my books, I'm always sure. I don't like try to, I don't feel like I'm a stand-up comedian doing bits or anything, but if something funny happens or a character does something funny, then I usually let it stand or I try to massage it into something the reader can get better. Because um, if you start hiding the funny stuff and just focusing on the sad stuff, then number one, you're giving the public, the readership, um, an image of Indians. It's all like trauma, drama, poverty, Mm. porn, all that stuff. Um, But on the other hand, um, if there's no humor, then things aren't balanced. Because life is like, life is you know funny and sad and scary and loving you know it's it's everything you know and the same way like when i when i write horror it it's not 100 percent horror it's always a little horror a little romance a little action mm. a little comedy and i think when you write romance it's not just 100 percent romance it's got some action it's got some um, some intrigue it's got all the other pieces it's just what's the predominant piece you know and in this piece in this novel yeah it's probably horror it is to me anyways mm. but, um but it's got all the other junk in it too, just to make it a real world, you know? I mean, like anyone, uh, there is this, this idea, and it, I think it, it certainly rings true to me as a reader, that by you being ultra-specific about the Blackfoot experience, mm-hmm. it becomes mm-hmm. universal, right? And in the same way that 
I don't yeah, like there is there is that trick, yeah, and um, I've heard it said better than I'm gonna say it. Um, maybe maybe somebody out there can look up the citation. I don't remember who said it, but if um, you get your own peculiarities on the page cleanly or directly enough that they kind of form a whole system, then that whole system can that whole particular system can um, it doesn't abstract, but it does somehow. Um, contain or distill or somehow engages with the general and becomes accessible to everyone. I've never been sure about that dynamic, how that works, but mm-hmm. the only, my only, uh, you know, I only got a glimmer of this when I was um, reading about David Foster Wallace. I hate to be the one who brings up David Foster Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was got to. It's a literary podcast. <laughs> it's got to happen. <laughs> when he, he was talking about the first time he saw David Lynch, like I think it was Blue Velvet, and he realized that, um, that this was so peculiarly, so specifically from the mind of a single person, you know, mm-hmm. and that always, that's always resonated with me. And I'm, and I realize that it's not about like smoothing off the sharp corners and rough edges of your stuff such that it goes down the reader's throat easier. It's about making it super specific and personal and peculiar in particular, you know, and if you can do that in a way in which it forms like a big system that is coherent with itself, then it can engage with the general, I think. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little about the family dynamics that are playing out in this novel, the, the, the description of, of all the interconnections with, with, the, yeah. with the community. Yeah. Well, there's um, these four guys, these four hunters who commit the trespass. They are, none of them are closely related by blood. I mean, on the reservation, of course, everybody's, everybody's cousin at some level. But, um, you know, when you read Neil Gaiman, um, like when you read Sandman, you see all these uh, and all the, in all the arcs, there's always a group of people who live in like an apartment house or, they, or wherever they live, you know, apartment building, I should say. And mm. you form your own families, you know, the same way you do when you're, when you're a teenager and you're, you know, you're resisting your parents and your home life and you have three or four or five friends and y'all become like a family unit, you know? Mm. And that's how these, that's how these four guys are. They're kind of like a family unit at the, at the point when they commit their trespass. Anyways, but aside from that, yeah, 10 years later, one of them has a wife, one of them has a fiance, one of them has a daughter, and those are all um, relationships that definitely get exploited. And you're right that um, that is the real horror is when things or when your um, family members are threatened for things you have done. That's terrifying. What the slasher does is teach us all to move through the world in a more compassionate way. It's not about don't don't do drugs, don't have sex, don't take your clothes off. It's not about any of that. It's about um, don't do things that leave victims such that, because if you do that, victim might come back and get you. So if there is a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers standing behind all of us, you know, figuratively, then I think our behavior would improve a whole lot. <laughs> And so for us now, we've got the elk, you know, and this, yeah. you've mentioned a few, Sandman, were you a Ghost Rider fan? Oh, I love Ghost Rider. Yeah. Cause I, I, I it's funny that I, I, I mean, you reference, I think it's Cyclops. So there's a few ref- yeah. comic yeah. references in the book, yeah. but uh, yeah. uh, I was waiting for the Ghost Rider cause that, that, that yeah. really did feel like this could have been a Ghost Rider story um, oh, man, for with sure. an elk head instead of a flaming skull, you know, in a way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. I was just, um, 
talking to a Marvel editor about how much I love Ghost, Ghost Rider. Um, yeah, Ghost Rider is just perfect to me. A dude with a flaming skull, a cool jacket, an amazing chopper. What else can you ask for? That's, yeah. I mean, he was, yeah, John, I wanted to be Johnny Blaze. Yeah, I grew up. that was that was I thought also yeah. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I know, and he he was always so tortured. I'd always think it's not that bad, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. Hey, so now you say you're talking to a Marvel editor. Uh, can I ask? Uh, does that does that mean that that you're? Is that something you oh, consider? No. That, it, it was no. I'd love to write comics, of course. And this was just casually talking to somebody. Yeah. Well, if if the if the universe is listening to us, I will I will pre I will pre-order your Ghost Rider comic uh, when, it, when it's time because I, I would love that. Um, just wanted to ask one more question about um, just about the, the the language. I just love the way uh, you're using language here. And, and one of the things that is really uh, that really jumped out at me was the way you switch into the second person from the third person personal, mm -hmm. uh, this sudden shift to you are watching. And is that, mm -hmm. I just want to know how, how long did you think about that? How did that, how did uh -huh. that, or is that come back almost to the slasher film? Uh, it, does, it does come back to the slasher film for me because when you watch a slasher or if you go back to the slasher's roots and watch the Giallo, um, it's there's always a looking through the killer's eyes thing. Like that's how, Michael Myers starts when he's what five years old in 1978. You know, um, when you start out the first five minutes of that, looking through the mask holes that he's wearing, and um, right. and even when the slasher's not wearing a mask, you still get those um, the slasher's looking through the branches of the tree at the person standing outside the party, and you hear the slasher breathing, and you know that this is a bad situation. You know, um, but the trick is. To do that on the page in fiction, you nearly have to do a section break. And if you have to drop a section break and then jump into the slasher's kind of point of view, then it feels a little stagey to me. Right. It doesn't. I don't think. I don't think that works very well. And I did play around with with it, and I found that um, falling into something that felt like second person um, was the only way to get across slasher cam, which is what I call it, slasher cam. You know, that's the only way I could. I could get that same feeling across mm. but if we can make things that are innocuous innocuous terrifying then we're charging the world with meaning for the readers for the audience and i mean i say that that's i right. act like that's a start i act like that's a service we're doing but it's um we're just introducing more terror into the world but i think terror keeps you alive if, if you're nervous in a parking garage walking through it at night then that's the proper behavior and if i can help make you nervous then maybe i'll help and save your life you know? wow yeah and i've, I've just want to end with with a question. Uh, um, I think that ties in with a, a number of the things we've been talking about. But uh, it's Denor, I think, who has the line that um, if the only good Indian is a dead one, she'll be the worst Indian ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And yeah. it, is that spirit something that you're hoping to leave the reader with? That sense of of yeah. continuity and perseverance, and and the fact that just because we've been. Uh, uh -huh. Living in horror for so long doesn't mean it's going to go forever. For sure, that's exactly what I want to what I want to force across, or you know, transmit, or infect, or, or whatever I want to have, whatever the verb is. That's what I want to do for sure. Um, and I want Denora to be like the carrier of that. You know, she she's. I want her to be the one who's got that that fire who who doesn't ask permission to survive. She just survives. You know. Mm. Oh, fantastic! Well, thank you so much for your time today. 
That was Stephen Graham Jones discussing his latest bestseller, The Only Good Indians. Thank you all for listening today, and thanks to all three amazing authors, Craig Davidson, Andrew Piper, and Stephen Graham Jones. A limited number of signed books are available from Perfect Books here in Ottawa, and all three are available wherever books are sold. The Writers' Festival, including this podcast, is made possible by charitable donations from generous individuals like you. If you enjoy what we do, please consider making a tax-creditable donation at writersfestival.org. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris as our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Join us next Friday for Episode 2, Surviving and Thriving, featuring Joanne Vanicola and Elena Martin. And as always, please let us know what you think of this podcast and our entire virtual season. Thanks again for listening.